Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David McGuire. And I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. We're sorry to interrupt your podcast this evening, but we come to you with a very important message. Are you tired of hearing the squeaking of our chairs? Are you tired of hearing a distant echo in the background? Are you tired of hearing my lips smack the moment before I talk? I know I am. But you know how we can fix that? We need help from you. You see, Rome was not built in a day. It was built over many months, and also with lots of money. And lots of marble. We don't actually need the marble. No, we don't need it. It'd be nice, but... Okay, let's just stick to things that we actually need. Okay, sorry. Okay, thank you. Anyways, if you feel like you want to help us with our squeaking chairs or massive echo and Brian's incessant lip smacking, please go to www.nerdonomy.com. Click on Donate, where your money will go to helping our nerd cave thrive and helping Brian get over his speech impediment. And to go to our need for lots and lots of Hot Pockets. We must have the Hot Pockets. You're listening to Nerds on Film with Sarah Ashley, Kevin Satorius, Brian Moriarty, and Sean Moriarty. Alright guys, so in lieu of tonight's conversation, I was curious, when it comes to Leonardo DiCaprio, what is your favorite movie he's in, or his your favorite performance that he has been in, or has done? Am I allowed to have multiple options? Because it's you, of course. Thank you. <laughs> I actually might have more than one myself. Okay. Yeah. Alright, Sean, would you like to begin? Yes. And? I would love to begin. So, favorite performance is probably What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Oh, oh my god. Okay. Brilliant. I he totally was just forgot. outstanding in that movie. Yeah. So totally Performance-wise, outstanding. I totally forgot he was in that movie. And I think he was also nominated for he his was performance as nominated well. Nominated for his first major film role. Too. Yeah, I know. Yeah, And then favorite, uh, favorite movie that he was in? Mm-hmm. The Departed. Yeah. Good choice. The Departed. Good choice. Yeah. Love that movie. Um, I gotta say favorite movie of mine... <laughs> that he is in is Inception. Oh. Inception's such a good movie. Yeah, it is such a good may movie. May I change my answer, please? No, you may not. <laughs> I would like to also say Inception. Uh, I will say the Noted best for performance, the I agree with you, is Gilbert Grape. It was a flawless performance. It was transformative. Though I will say I really enjoy him in Man in the Iron Mask because it was the first time we were like, oh, wow, he really can act because he's like, yeah, you can't, people had forgotten about Gilbert Grape at that. No. Point. Wait, that was so? the first time? No, Brian. Why? No, it was his first major performance after well, Titanic. I like, that, I like that he was the good guy and the bad guy. I thought he, he did them both very convincingly. Mm. Spoiler alert! <laughs> oh, whatever. Really? <laughs> if you just don't know that there's a movie about twins in that, for shame. Twins, yeah, right. Basil, twins. Twinsies. <laughs> so, I don't know. Okay, I know I'm totally in the minority here, but I didn't think i did was not convinced that he was a good actor until the departed until i saw that movie yeah um which uh, you know and i've i loved other movies i was in catch me if you can is a fantastic freaking oh, movie yeah. oh, but yeah. i don't necessarily attribute that to him um, it was steven spielberg and lots of other people yeah so i Ooh, and wow okay so that's probably one of my all-time favorite movies that he's been in um but uh I, yeah the departed changed it for me um inception was also really good um django unchained he he yeah. should have been nominated for yeah. an Oscar for that performance. Yeah, that's true. And it's frustrating to me that he wasn't. As much as I enjoyed Christoph Waltz getting his second Oscar for his second Quentin Tarantino movie, I preferred... Second nomination in a row, too. Yeah, in a row. Uh, I preferred Leo getting the nom and the win. 
I also want to give a special shout out to Basketball Diaries. Oh, that wow. is a com- totally completely depressing movie. But I actually, the, I liked him in that movie too. That was our introduction to Mark Wahlberg too. That was his first movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fresh yep. from his Marky Mark phase. Yep, yep. Wow. Just when he was trying to get rid of it. Yeah. Jeez. Oh God. I guess I got to go watch that movie then. Um, all right. So I guess I'm going to be an extreme minority with this group. But you I, say Jay Edgar, you're done. Seriously? I'm, I'm holding an invisible no, gun I'm kidding. at I the camera. Like, right I, now. <laughs> I thought his his performance in J. Edgar was phenomenal. However, my favorite of his performances is actually uh, Frank Abagnale from Catch Me If You Can. I think he has the best character arc and development arc in all the roles that he's ever played. And I thought he did a great job, and you saw him really flourish as a person throughout that entire movie from beginning to end. That's my you know what? performance. I'm convinced that his performance in Catch Me If You Can and his smooth talking and his way <laughs> of of just being the most like hopeful person you could imagine is probably why he scored the role in uh, The Great Gatsby. Yeah, it's true. Oh, uh, you know, probably. 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 Hey, yeah. My favorite movie of his that he's been in. Um, oh, God. It's... Ugh. All right, so I'm going to say it's a, probably a two-way tie between... You sure it's only two-way? Only this time. Because uh, uh, it's not gay if it's in a three-way, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> is a tie between Shutter Island and Inception. Shutter mm. Island was a really good movie. It I think that one was really actually kind movie. of underrated. Yeah. All right, everybody. Again, Are you ready to kick me out like time. you're used to kicking Kevin out? I still haven't seen Shutter Island. That's okay. That's All not right, one of those John, really crucial been real. Like Goodbye. <laughs> no, no, no. That is Thanks, not Kevin. That is hey, not... I haven't seen it either, dude. It was so. great. It is not one Get of those... Get the fuck out of this place. Not so nice when you hear it from the other end, is it, Brian? <laughs> I don't think that Shutter Island was one of those really important movies like That's Clerks or Empire Records, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't even. That's like saying you haven't seen Princess Bride. <gasps> no, I'm Who totally hasn't seen fucking Princess kidding. Bride? I own... Anybody? We've Princess all seen Bride. it. Yeah. Everyone in the, on Earth has seen it. It's required viewing. Uh, Inconceivable! Actually, not necessarily true. Um, my Swedish roommate... Uh, watched it for the first time about a year ago. Well, she has seen it then. That's she has yes. now, but that's you know clearly not a very popular movie choice over in Sweden. Mm. So, mm. Mm. <laughs> yes, mm. quite them with their Indeed. ABBA. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you brought up Gatsby because uh, would you argue that that's. It's a segway! Yeah! Oh, yeah. <laughs> well done, dude. Well done. Well done. you guys had fun with that. I, kind of, I think I need to do that over again. See, I, I, could, I can't sing it. I'm so on the edge of you I shouldn't try to sing it in your octave, because then it sounds like crap if I sing it in your octave. So. It's fine. Right. I, even though you I just sa- sound a little nasally, Sarah. You don't sound that bad. No, but if I try to sing, my voice is going to crack. And even though I sound like shit, I'll just I'll do it again if you need to. <laughs> go for it, guys. Just go for it. It's interesting that you brought up uh, Gatsby because that's our segue. Sorry, really, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I don't do performances like. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Why are you looking at the ceiling? Yeah. You Why are you looking fuck? at your cum-covered ceiling? Because I'm disgusted and I don't want to look at you. <laughs> and with that, welcome to Nerds on Film, everybody. I'm Brian Moriarty. I'm Sarah Ashley. I'm Kevin Satorius. And first time ever, go ahead, say it. Take it. Sean Moriarty. What? That's right. The Moriarty brothers are together it's like a last. Moriarty sandwich in here. Yep. I forget which one of the signs this is of the apocalypse, but it's it's in the. I think it's never. 
<laughs> I think it's number three and a half. <laughs> Four is outright. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, Sean. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad to be here. Well, you sound like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad to be here. This <laughs> is the best thing ever. We can't see anything below the chest line, <laughs> sorry, so I'm a little concerned. It's yeah. very good for you. For, you down there. for our regular listeners, Sean uh, lives in Colorado, and he's going to be joining us via Skype from now on. And um, yeah, I gotta say, it's a little alarming that we can't see anything below mid chest, dude. For all I know, God knows what's going on below that camera. You don't want to know what's going on down here. <laughs> No. Are you mm-hmm. wearing a midriff? Yeah. <laughs> midriff? Yes. <laughs> this is right here is where it cuts off. I'm not wearing nothing from this line down. I cut the shirt. <laughs> Took my but I am wearing socks. It's some weird thing. <laughs> nothing below here but socks. And they don't match. You gotta, you gotta stay warm somehow. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. I just tuck it into one of the socks. <laughs> And it's not like alarmingly large either. Like I have to, I have to get in a weird yoga pose in order to. Put. Do you put it? Do, do, do you, you just sometimes? like having it nestled? So what there? do you like? Do you play yep. leapfrog? Mm-hmm. Is that you walk like you're a frog all day? Is that what you do? <laughs> it's also a way for me to monitor my pulse. Because <laughs> that part of your ankle is very sensitive right here. You know the part I'm talking about. And when your dick's right against it, you can feel your pulse. <laughs> So so when you, you broke when you, Sarah, you broke Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Only five minutes in, you broke her. <laughs> so when you see something that is quite pleasing to you, you do have a veritable kickstand for you. Then, yep. If you ever misplace a belt, do you just use that as a surrogate belt? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't actually have a left leg. <laughs> nope, I lost it in the war. <laughs> Which war would that be, Sean? Craft. <laughs> I lost it playing World of Warcraft. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so Gatsby, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So we decided, being nerds, that we would do research for this. Because we're a bunch of film nerds, but we also are graced with the presence of a fine literary nerd. Well, Thank you, okay. Sean. I appreciate that. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. <laughs> That's me. Who's I'm actually, I'm actually wearing my, um, my F. Scott Fitzgerald shirt today. Nice. I'm not even really? joking. Yeah, it says, I want to F Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> hmm. Yep. Uh, by the way, is um, nobody else amused by that? No, no, no. no don't worry. We, we, we chuckled many a time. I do want to point out that this shirt was given to me by my dear friend Billy, who's also a regular listener of the podcast. Hi, uh, Billy. So I wanted to say thank you. Thank you for giving me the shirt. I love it. We're waiting for your next blog, Billy. The last one was awesome. Well, yeah. Hey, more. Give us more. Yeah, Moss. Por favor. By the way, um, in Midnight in Paris, wasn't Tom Hiddleston playing uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald? Yes. Yes. Beautifully. Yes. Beautifully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I actually forgot that it was him for about yeah. 15 minutes. I'm going to watch that movie when I get home. It's pretty spectacular. I'm jonesing to watch it now. I love Midnight in Paris. Although, um, I think uh, Hemingway is probably my favorite character in that. Yeah. Because he's yeah. just so beautifully intense. Uh, uh, Adrian Brody playing uh, Dolly, yeah. being obsessed with rhinoceros. Yep. <laughs> that was funny. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Oh, and Kathy Bates, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. She, she was so much fun. But that Midnight in Paris is not the topic. No. The Great Gatsby is the topic. Oh, so. really? Yes, yes, it is. Oh. That's why we talked about Leonardo DiCaprio. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, 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 ha. It's like we planned that shit. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think it's the first time we've ever planned yeah. that shit out, <laughs> so we'd have an even segue. Well, being that you know we are the nerds that we are, uh, we decided to do some research for this episode, and for me, that involves watching both Boz Lorman's Great Gatsby, uh, as well as the Jack Clayton Great Gatsby from 1974. And uh, did you guys all see the Boz Lerman one as well? Yeah, I saw the yeah. Baz Lerman one. Um, I've seen the Robert Redford version before when I read the book for the first time in high school, and then I watched, I want to say about half of it earlier today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My research for tonight was actually seeing the Baz Luhrmann uh, Great Gatsby twice because my first time experience was, looking back on it, quite horrendous actually. And so watching it a second time uh, really put things in a better light for me. And I read the book back in high school or middle school. So I have the literary reference and now the modern reference too. I watched the Baz Luhrmann one. I've read the book in high school just like everybody else. And... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and I started watching the one on Netflix, and then 30 minutes into it, I was like, I can't take this shit no more. <laughs> so I texted Brian, and I said, Brian, you should totally watch all of that one and take notes. <laughs> Please excuse me if I suddenly sound like I'm breathing heavily, because I've just been thrown under a bus. <laughs> I threw you under the bus. Sorry, buddy. And you're welcome. Um, <laughs> no, I would have rather had a Samoan male prostitute have his way with me than to finish watching that movie. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? Guess Don't it was you that bad? I'd rather have a Samoan male prostitute have his way with you again. <laughs> <laughs> again? I, I texted that to them last night as I was watching. <laughs> again? I, I, don't, I don't think it was that bad oh yes it was there, it was I, slow it was slow going but uh, let's let's also back you know what i think it was just <laughs> i think it, i couldn't handle it because of how fast-paced the Boz Lerman one was and i enjoyed it a lot and then to watch that one the day after yeah i watched yeah. that one maybe three hours after so so yeah, yeah. I, I watched the Baz Lerman one and then read the book and then watched the robert redford one earlier today so i've that was the order which i, I gatsby did. overload much uh, well yeah considering i read the book in two days yeah well that's <laughs> yeah. also i mean it's not that not no no, no it's long. no it's, it's very short but um still when I'm not used to marathon reading anymore since okay. I graduated, so like I was like, okay, <laughs> gotcha. I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say that they both have their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, you guys know me. I'm very reluctant to come up to take on the role of being a film critic. Um, I will say I enjoy the Lemon movie much more than I enjoyed the Clayton film um, for a multitude of reasons, uh, which I'll probably get into later. But they're both different interpretations of it. I respect that. And they're both different adaptations, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people talk about how uh, when a f book is adapted to a film, how sometimes it doesn't always honor the source material. And to be really honest, I think that's okay because that's the reason why it's an adaptation. You're not transcribing it word for word to film. You're, we're going to talk about adaptations and what we think is the best adaptation in our opinion. Yes. Yeah, which, which one is, in fact, The Greater Gatsby is the question. Uh-huh. <laughs> Between the two movies? Well done, sir. Well done, yeah. Did it take you all night to think of that one? <laughs> uh, I, on the other hand, am one to jump headfirst into the pool of being a film critic. I hope Jack Clayton gets hit in the face with a bomb. Wow. <laughs> That's wow. what I thought of. Jack Clayton, if you're listening, I wish only terrible things for you and your family. That is all. Wow. But do you know who, uh, no, who wrote That's the not script for that, that one? Bad. Yeah, do you know who wrote the script for that, dude? Yeah, I know who wrote the script for that. Francis Ford Coppola, and he's also been quoted as saying that that screenplay that he wrote was never made. 
Oh, interesting. No way. Really? Yeah. Wow. So he got credit for a movie that he didn't write. Interesting. Well, no, he wrote the he wrote the script, but you know how Hollywood is, right? Every, like then six other people take over and start messing with the yep. script, and Francis Ford Coppola gets the gets the credit. So because yeah, because I think there's a rule in the Writers Guild that if there's not one writer who's dominant enough, that the original writer gets in terms the of credit. their material. Yeah. Okay. So someone basically goes in and does a page one rewrite of it, but it's not enough to be different than Coppola's concept, so therefore it sticks. Is that, is that the end? Interesting. Huh. Here's the thing I find very, very interesting. Both The Great Gatsby's that we're talking about tonight, those are going to be the focus, because there's actually been like five different film adaptations of it. The Jack Clayton one is 144 minutes long. Only? Only 144 minutes long. Boz Lerman's is 143 minutes long. What? No. Yeah, it yeah. is. But Clayton's version feels like a half hour longer, I would say. Mm. Huh. I totally thought that this movie was um, two hours and 40 minutes. Nope, 23. Huh. 143 okay. minutes. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And I just thought that was very interesting that they, they are almost identical in, in length, but yet they are so different in pacing. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, emphasis. well, that's, that's Baz Luhrmann. Um, one thing I really noticed um, about Baz Luhrmann's take on this was from the beginning, beat for beat, it's so very, very close to Moulin Rouge. It's not even funny. Like, um, he even added the element of uh, a Nick Carraway being in the asylum, and, and we can talk about the details between the differences between the books and the movies. I'm totally prepared for that. I'm so excited for that. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but for this aspect of, of having the solemn narrator outside of the story looking back on it and writing it down as almost maybe a sort of therapy or telling his story. Um, and then reflecting back, and then all of a sudden, let me show you this crazy time period. And um, he did it in a different way, you know, using um, the old stock footage as opposed to you know mixing, doing, yeah, doing the the actually I think the pacing maybe in the beginning of Moulin Rouge was probably a little bit more successful, but uh, but all of that was very very similar. And then doing these ebbs and flows of going back was very much like you know comparing Tobey Maguire in the Insane Asylum to crying Ewan McGregor with his uh, typewriter. It was very, very similar. Yeah. That's true. There, there were similarities there. and that, But then again, I think that's also the style of the director. And, yeah, uh, no, I would definitely call that his signature. Yeah, I mean, it's like Tim Burton. You see a Tim Burton movie, you're going to say, oh, I bet the main character's an outcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. I thought that Baz Luhrmann, though, the, it, it's one of Baz Luhrmann's strong suits because I, I love Moulin Rouge. I'm probably one of the only straight guys who really loves it. It's such uh, a good and, movie. <laughs> And I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of this new Great Gatsby, and I think that part of his style that I love is that 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 smash cutty way that he gets you into the story is just because of especially the way that um, our generation and future generations have such a short attention span that it gets you into the story and into what's happening quickly, and it gets you invested quickly. Well, so yeah. the thing I noticed as the primary difference in filmmaking style was that Clayton's was very much about realism. Lorman's version is far more formalistic and stylized when you look, compare it to Clayton's version. It's modern. It, it, yep. like, I mean, like to summarize it, it's very modern take, whereas with the other one, from what I've heard, it's very classical. I mean, yeah, yep. you could say classical, too. Yeah, yeah. It um, is very classical. A lot of, a lot of wide sh establishing shots, not a whole lot of movement of the camera. A lot um, of really unnecessary shots on things that are not important, like an ashtray and a cardinal. Thank you for yes. bringing that up. because I And it zooms in on the ashtray for yeah, no goddamn it's reason. It's no freaking reason. And I will <laughs> say that those were details that were not in the book, so what's the point? Exactly. Those were days... Those were days that Andy Warhol was visiting the set and giving the director notes. <laughs> uh, just zoom in, zoom in on the ashtray. 
and then have the butler in the background eating a turkey sandwich <laughs> <laughs> and eating soup straight from the can. The crust <laughs> must be cut off. <laughs> can we get can we get a, a, a prop boy in here? Cut that man's crusts off. <laughs> I want a midget wearing only sandals to bring in the sandwich. <laughs> oh my god. I can't hear you. And Andy Warhol's Great Gatsby. Holy crap, that would be a <laughs> but be Daisy. Insanity. It's like I love you. <laughs> okay, so how do we want how do we want to do this? Do we want to, which which film do we want to talk about first? Do we want to talk about Dorman or, or Clayton? Why don't we start? Let's start by doing. Uh, I'd like to just mention a couple things, please. Uh, before we get into the 1974 or the most recent Gatsby, uh, let's start out with the first film adaptation of The Great Gatsby, which was actually a silent film that was lost. made in 1926. Yes, Sarah, still, it was lost. Get, it's you, lost. There is nothing left of it except for the trailer. Yes, the trailer still exists, but uh, it's one of many lost films from that era. Indeed. Uh, and it was actually an adaptation, straight adaptation of the stage play that was on Broadway at the time. Yep. Uh, and it ran for almost a year. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess you can get a hold of the stage play. I'm sure you can get a hold of that script and read that, and that's the closest you'll get to seeing the original. So I have to bring up a, a total, total nerd piece of trivia about this movie. All right. Guess who played Nick Carraway in this version? Andy Warhol. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin? Nope. Buster, I know, but Buster just because Keaton? Brian told me, so I'll let him have his moment. Way to fucking ruin it, dude. Come on. Okay. <laughs> Neil Hamilton. Now you're like, wait, who's Neil Hamilton? Um, you would know him as Commissioner Gordon on the 60s Batman oh, TV shit. Oh, shut the front door. Dead serious. That's cool. He you was know. actually, he, most of his acting career was as a silent film actor, and then, uh, obviously, he did Batman toward the end of his career. Oh, but, that's right. Yeah. How crazy is that? That is hmm. crazy. Um, and wasn't there, uh, there was another version that was done later on in, like, the 40s or the 50s with 1949. Shelley Winters, wasn't that? Shelley Winters and Alan Ladd, father of Alan Ladd Jr., who was the, uh, for a long time was the head of 20th Century, 20th Century Fox. Fox. yeah. Yeah. Alan Ladd Sr., um, yeah, was Gatsby in that version. And interestingly enough, that movie and the 74 version have one ca- character in common, one, one actor in common. Mm-hmm. Howard De Silva, who played Wilson in the 1949 version, was Meyer Wolfsheim. In oh. the 1974 oh. version. Interesting. Hmm. You got all your nerd trivia down, Brian. Dude. Without your notes. There we go. <laughs> Brian Yardy, sans notes, everyone. He was gesticulating to his noggin, what? by the way. Gesticulating. <laughs> I can remember very, very absurd details about random things. And can yeah. we make a new rule for the home game? Every time Sarah says gesticulating, people have to... I haven't have said that in weeks. Masturbating. I haven't said that in weeks. Yeah, but you're talking to a Months. guy who listens to every episode in detail. I've, so I feel like I've heard you say it like 35,000 times. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I I'll, like that word. I'll pick a new word. Mononucleosis. <laughs> Why? anti <Anti-distopsmetarianism. laughs> Uh, All right, so after 1949, I guess uh, 74 was the next film adaptation, right? Yeah. 74 was the, in fact, the Jack film adaptation. Jack Clayton. Jack Clayton, starring, that of course... son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, and there were some pretty interesting things. Uh, I mean, so being that I just, you know, reread the book, I read the book before, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, there were some interesting aspects of this book, uh, or this uh, this movie, from what I did rewatch of it, that frustrated me. Um there was a lot of scenes that did not involve Nick Carraway 
Nor, Thank you. Nor were they involving information that he would have had. So the fact that Nick Haraway is actually the narrator of the book and he's the guy who's taking you through the story anyway... Um, that was really frustrating to me and there were aspects of their conversations that they were having together that were conveyed and uh, conveyed elsewhere in the book and in different ways that I think were probably more successful yeah. and it just felt odd to yeah me. and the worst example of that is I think near the end of the 74 version where you see George in the shop with some random friend who's trying to like tell him he needs to talk to a priest or something so he doesn't lose his mind and it was a long scene and it it was completely unnecessary and like every other scene as soon as you take Nick's perspective off of the you know the window we're seeing the movie through it, it I think it just bends the book over and has its filthy anal way with it <laughs> that I'm so glad you brought that up because there's a couple reasons why I think not that the whole anally raping the book metaphor but, um, <laughs> but just that the, the lack of consistency with whose perspective the story is coming from yeah yeah. Um, because, first of all, I'm very skeptical of using voiceover in film, and I thought Lerman's movie did it well, and this one didn't. Because it starts off with voiceover, and it ends with voiceover, and then he just abandons it through most of the way through the film. And I actually appreciate the fact that he used the device of him telling the story by typing it out or talking to the psychiatrist in the modern version, even though it was not in the book, to be used as a device to push the narrative forward. And that's why I was talking about adaptation earlier, is that I think it's okay to take a liberty with it because it's his interpretation of the story. Um, Sarah's getting angry over I'm there. I'm not I getting angry. It. I just... The, do we want to talk about the narrator? Because I can talk about the narrator. We can talk about the oh, narrator. Snap. But, I mean, again, we need to stop the whole opinions are wrong thing if we're going to go that I'm not without. saying opinions are yeah, wrong. Yeah, I'm not either. Okay. There is no it's wrong opinion other I than California that... Adventure. <laughs> I... Exactly. I said that once to David about a topic that doesn't even matter about a theme park. It was okay. a joke. A theme park that doesn't even matter. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you slow your roll. <laughs> see what I'm talking about? You um, see, guys? <laughs> but the, the thing about okay yes but the thing about Clayton's film that I was really kind of bothered with was, was right there was this unnecessary attention to smaller characters in the story like I felt like the overemphasis on Myrtle's character was was an attempt to make the audience feel more sympathetic for her um, although I thought that uh, Karen Black's version of Myrtle even though I do love Isla Fisher um, I thought that the, the Karen Black's version of it in 1974 no. she had a lot more passion and seemed much for some reason I was more drawn to her character because she seemed much more unstable that says something about the type of girl I look for, I guess. I just, we just had, like, a Freudian moment. <laughs> no, I will say that the, the, the Baz Luhrmann version of Myrtle was um, maybe underused. Yeah, I d felt like Myrtle was... On, I mean, she was in the first scene, and then that's it. And then, oh, spoiler alert, she gets hit by the car, and that's it. You see her in the first, the, one of the first scenes. Well, and well that's pretty the much car, the book. Do we really need to spoiler alert this? I mean, come on, guys. No. Yes. That is pretty much the book. But like Brian was saying with adaptations, I honestly wouldn't have minded a little more Tom and Myrtle in the movie to, to really sell the relationship. I just felt like when I was watching the movie that the Tom... Oh, of course, I haven't read the book in a long time, but when Tom and Myrtle had that thing in the beginning, I almost forgot about their relationship a little bit, and then I thought a little reminder would have made her getting hit by the car a little more powerful. Okay, okay. I can see that argument um, because I guess... Uh, in, in the book, they do kind of... It's kind of a little bit more referred to frequently about the fact that Tom has 
had affairs, not just Myrtle, but with other people, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's yep. kind of referred to in the Lerman movie, but it's like a throwaway line. Yeah. One it's, throwaway it's line. Pretty, it's pretty small. Yeah, I think it's the line near the end when he, when they're having the meeting at the hotel and he says, I've been known to go on one or two blanks. Fenders. And then, uh, something like that. <laughs> yeah, and then Daisy says mentions the one in Chicago where he's obviously had some rampant affair before. Oh yeah, yeah, no, and a woman died in that in that rampant bender, wasn't it? What? No, I don't no? think so. Are you sure? I don't remember. I thought that. The, there was a reference that the last time he had an affair, there was a, a person ended up dying and they moved. Maybe I'm mixing no, see, up movies. I, then I, I don't. I don't. Oh, I don't remember that. Okay, um, you're thinking of my diary that I let you read. <laughs> <laughs> it's so telling, Sean. It's so telling. <laughs> Actually, well, the thing with the thing with Tom and Daisy, and they just move a lot in general. That's actually something that the that the Baz Luhrmann movie didn't necessarily capture was yeah. that. Um, them as a as a family unit since they've been married they've been all over the place they've lived in europe and in different locations all over europe they lived in different places in the states and that that they do not settle down and that was something that i think um was not necessarily that element i think is pretty important for daisy's character mm. and i think that was lost her little bit of a she's a little bit more hyper a little bit more jet setting than um yeah. the yeah. she was uh, portrayed so kind of jump off of that idea with the lerman vi- uh, movie as well um i like how they mention their daughter once near the beginning of the movie yeah, yeah. it's completely <laughs> forgotten until literally the one of the last sh- scenes of the movie where she's actually there no joke the daughter is virtually not present in the book yeah she's and just i think that, that not says there. something okay. though i think it's important to know that they these two people are so involved with themselves yeah. with the culture yeah. and with their their egos that that you're seeing their complete ignorance of the child as yeah. a, a definite part of their character so yeah. out of curiosity before we take this further do you guys want to know what the rotten tomatoes rating is on the 1974 oh i had one more comment nope, to make about i the don't daughter. i don't i don't want to know i want to hear what sarah says brian go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead speak sir um so no in the book the daughter is mentioned in the beginning when he's you know asking like oh you know i i heard you had a kid i suppose she talks and walks and eats now and stuff um and then in the book later on towards the end there's a scene where the daughter actually comes in the nurse escorts her in and um she has a little uh conversation with her mom but her mom's just like you know oh my blessed precious girl you know you're so adorable look at your beautiful dress okay i'm done with you now (laughs) like you can go jeez i mean she didn't like say that but that's really the way the that moment comes off yeah. she's just it's almost like the daughter's a, just a little extra trophy in her lifestyle hmm. yeah exactly oh, I was just about to say trophy you stole my word yeah and, and even <laughs> and i also think it, it's a, it's a device to push the plot forward with her state of mind because mm. of that famous quote in both movies and in the book where she says i hope she grows up to be a fool yeah, yeah. It's only with, with that yeah beautiful little movie. fool yeah, exactly. in the beginning yep. of the book i understand why the daughter isn't in the book and like in the movie as well but at the same time Everything that they're doing, it would be horrible if the daughter was somehow involved or even in the same room with those types of conversations that they have. But at the same time, it just felt odd that she's mentioned once and then you see her for a brief moment. Yeah. So... Yeah. yeah, but I agree. I think it goes back to the carelessness. The Oh, yeah. Of the carelessness of the time. The whimsical exactly. of the time. The whimsy. Yeah. Whimsy. Whimsy, maybe, but I would carelessness, definitely say the, careless the decadence whimsy. and the carelessness. Yes. Yeah. And actually, the funny thing, the funny aspect of that is with respect to child rearing you know in the victorian days kids were treated more like little adults 
Um, they weren't given as much uh, childish liberty as they are now. And that's something that was transitioning in the 20s. And so when you have these people who grew up a certain way, these are this is old money we're talking about with, with Daisy and Tom and, and the old money, new money thing is such a huge thing. East egg, son. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> East egg, son. <laughs> um, you know, that... The, the socioeconomics of this story are so very important, but that you know that's just more reflective of of their lifestyle and who they are as a family and what they come from, is that they come from a time when you know you weren't like playing with your kids necessarily. Their the kids were raised by a nurse and you saw them every once in a while. The to, nurse, to be fair, honestly, nurse, with the extremely yeah. wealthy, that's still true. Sure. Okay. A team a team of Guatemalan immigrants raises rich people's children. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Brian just just went like "Ah, all right all right (laughs) I guess that's just gonna be like I got nothing to say about that (laughs) um so what do we want to talk about I there's a lot of things I would love to talk about with this I'm I'm geeking out really hard right now let's uh let's start out with uh the character of Gatsby as portrayed by Robert Redford as opposed to Leonardo DiCaprio can I start this off please please start this off awesome okay so um I was watching the Robert Redford version for 30 and minutes. my critique of his acting performance in that movie is, boy, he sure is pretty. He Moving really, on. He's <laughs> devilishly um, handsome. I am glad that you said the exact same thing that I was thinking. We know Redford's not a bad actor. He's done some fabulous no. work. But I think this was a miss for him. I mean, he. I think Gatsby more often than not comes off as very wooden. There's moments, there's glimmers of the emotion that's going on between him and Daisy, but I feel like their whole relationship is so subsumed that when it finally starts to come to a boiling point at the end, when you get to the scene in the apartment in New York City, it feels false. And I also particularly thought Mia Farrow's performance was, but I'll get to that in a second, but I also felt like in contrast to his woodenness, her over-the-topness just kind of ruined it, but go ahead. Robert Redford is an outstanding actor, and the funny thing and the sad thing is is one of the reasons he's such an outstanding film actor is because of the subtlety of the emotions that he conveys, but that just wasn't right for this story, in my opinion. I thought that Leonardo DiCaprio did a much better job of showing the passion and mm-hmm. the drive and the obsession that, uh, that Gatsby's character needs. I agree with that, actually. I really do agree with that. I wholeheartedly concur. I think there were a lot of interesting layers with the way Leonardo DiCaprio played it. I think he captured a lot of a, a fundamental um, emotional base that is more uh, relatable to his upbringing as a, as a poor boy. Then he puts up the facade, right? The gentlemanly facade. And when you see the cracks in that, that's what makes it more charming and um, makes him more... Uh, magnanimous as a oppo- big words I know as opposed to uh, Robert Redford was pretty much all the facade yeah. I felt mm-hmm. and interestingly enough you know coming from the book perspective I think uh, I think Gatsby has a-, a lot of those those elements that Leonardo DiCaprio captured but I kind of wonder if it was developed outside of the idea that Nick Carraway is still seeing all of this because um, you know Nick Carraway is is an unreliable narrator and that's going to be another conversation we have a little bit later um but you know he's he's giving us the portrayal of gatsby so there were there were aspects of it that you can't help but feel like you know he nick haraway comments on like gatsby having a particular smile that he shares with everybody um as a way of of again keeping up his his front 
Um, and so I think that's kind of interesting to see how how that's played. And I would be I would be interested to see if Leonardo DiCaprio was developing that from, you know, how he felt that Gatsby would be versus the embellishment of Nick Carraway. Exactly, seeing it through Nick Carraway's eyes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because there there are times in the Lerman movie where I saw a sort of exaggeration of Gatsby in one brief moment shortly after a Caraway voiceover, and then there are other times in the movie where I would see a slightly different characteristic about Gatsby portrayed through DiCaprio, um, where it seemed a little more genuine, and I wonder if that was on purpose or whether it was just something that my brain was telling me that was happening that actually wasn't. Yeah, it seems to me that Boz Lerman, compared to the 1974 version, was trying to convey that this was Nick's vision of how everything happened because of A, the scenes of him in the mental institution writing, and B, because of how he speaks about Gatsby in the very beginning and how you see him are so consistent, being the single most hopeful person that he'd ever met. And like yeah. his like, uh, verbal romantic uh, journey in terms of Nick Carraway talking about Gatsby at the beginning when he meets him, and then how he just slowly starts getting uninterested and detached. And it actually it created a very even tone. Like you could project where this was going, but you were comfortable with the ride. In terms of uh, Nick Carraway's voiceover in the Lerman version. Oh my god, we, I just, agree. we just keep dancing around the narration topic. <laughs> so let's uh, Alright, Sarah. Let's just do it. Let's just unreliable narrator, Sarah. Let's no. just let's just yeah, let's just break from the foreplay and just get it fucking in there. Seriously. Wow. Wow. That's <laughs> We're not even gonna spit on it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Wowza. Wow. Right. Yeah. Taking charge. Uh, <laughs> Aware that this was the sort of flavor I was going to bring to Nerds on Film? <laughs> oh, I knew. I'm so happy I you're said here, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, so, so Nick Haraway is one of those quintessential unreliable narrators. He passes judgment on all of these people that he's met. And, um, and this is, again, coming from the book. Well, he does that in every film. He I does think. it in the films, absolutely. Yeah. Well, maybe not so much in the 1970s version. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think he. I don't think that carried over as well. Yeah, because it ended with Sam Morrison having to leave uh, West Egg because he had to um, try a murder case. Yeah. No. <laughs> really? No one got the Law and Order joke. Oh, there you go. I got it. Nah. I'm still lost. <laughs> okay. All right. He passes judgment and then yeah no see so he passes judgment on all of um, on all of the people that he meets but you know in the book he's not in a mental in a mental institution he's just writing about this time that he had over the summer and though he's now been in a place where he has watched one of his you know arguable friends die and he's you know seen all of these shallow people and kind of been manipulated by them and it was all very calculated in the way his role was laid out in that in that group and so you know he's got this cynicism which is actually very appropriate for the time and and so he's trying to manage that while talking about the story but it's almost like you know is he doing kind of therapy writing to a certain extent um and he also has a tendency to kind of be a liar he'll say that you know, he tries not to judge people, but then again, he's passing judgment over everybody. So he doesn't really, you can't really hold to um, everything he says because he does things differently than what he says he's going to do. One of the recurring themes about the whole book is hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, amongst other themes. Yeah. But. Well, and it's interesting. He, he talks a lot about honesty yeah. and he talks about um, Jordan Baker being dis dishonest and um, 
and also he says that he's one of the most honest people he's ever met talking about himself yeah and yet interestingly enough you know is that sarcasm maybe but you know he does try to you know he tries to be like this guy like i'm totally an out you know the within without dichotomy that was very much highlighted in the the lerman version ideally a narrator is kind of disconnected from the story um and yet what was interesting about this thinking about that whole narrative watching the lerman Lerman film is that caraway is in fact a major character in the film or in the story and yet he is also the one narrating it at the same time. And that's not unusual. I mean, we've seen other versions uh, of stories do that, but um, I can see how it is kind of inconsistent, especially considering the way what he says versus what he does. Right, um, and and that's that's honestly what I think adds to the book. I think that book was, in that st- the story in general of Gatsby is, is very calculated in that way. And so I, I, not to say, you know, having an unreliable narrator is a bad thing. It's just an aspect of the book. And then, it's almost an archetype. Yeah, and then what's interesting about that then is how he used that in doing the asylum thing in in the current movie. Um, you know, having him be reflecting on that. You're trying to be a recovering alcoholic, which is probably I would assume an, a nod to um, Zelda Fitzgerald, who um, was in several um, estate asylums and the end of her life. You know, F. Scott's wife. Yeah. Um, she was bipolar, and then she ended up actually dying in an asylum fire. Like, they all got trapped and couldn't get out. It was very tragic. I kind of have a feel- feeling that Myrtle was based off of Zelda. Like, Oh, I have no idea. Sean, you had done some notes about uh, F. Scott's research, uh, what he based some of the characters on, right? Yep. Well, let's go down the list here. Daisy is based on um, Genova King. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Who was somebody that F. Scott Fitzgerald was um, in a romantic relationship with when he was young. And then uh, Tom is is based on William Mitchell, who was uh, Genova's husband, who she ended up marrying after F. Scott and him. Uh, F. Scott and her <laughs> broke up. And... Uh, that lady, Genova, was really good friends with a, uh, a golfer named Edith, Edith Cummings. And uh, Edith Cummings is obviously where Jordan is based off of. And Jordan, um, I want to talk about Jordan for a second, because in the Boz Lerman version, Jordan, uh, Jordan's relationship with Nick was never really defined at all. It seemed like they had just met and that it looked like Daisy was trying to hook him up. It was implied then, at best. It was implied at best. Oh, same, and, same thing in the Clayton version, too. Yeah, and it... it in the book it's a little it's way more thought out like yeah well sort of he basically has described himself several times over just being half in love with her or like maybe i could be in love with you at this point but nick Haraway is all again he's kind of about emotional detachment and so he was kind of still pointing out all of her flaws at the same time of being like oh but she's really charming so i want to hang out with her you know i couldn't i've got a little piece of trivia Go for it. Go for it. I've got a little piece of trivia for you. Does anybody here know where Jordan Baker, the character, gets her name from? Where? Well, uh, basically, Jordan Baker's character was conveyed as having a fast reputation, right? She's being a very fast lady. Yeah. Well, uh, in that era, in the 20s, Jordan Motor Company and Baker Motor Vehicle were two of the most popular motor vehicle companies. So that's huh. why they named her Jordan uh, Baker. Okay. Okay. So if you, so honestly, in my so opinion, basically it's when a way I read of saying that, she's a slut. Kind of. <laughs> but when I read that, I was like, wow, I bet you if I read this book in 1925, I would have said, oh, that's so cheesy. <laughs> they made her name two car companies. So basically that what would be you're like saying. If they redid it and they're like, her name is Mercedes BMW. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying and she's is. she's a very fast lady. It, it, 
Mercedes Bentley. Her name is Corvette Mustang. <laughs> I, I feel like she's the just, lady of the evening. Are you just listing off strippers? <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is Jordan Baker. Uh, a lot of people like to ride in her and go fast. I would just say though yep. that. I would feel very uncomfortable if there was a stripper named Mustang. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying, for some reason, that name I would seem. Good. Well, and and is she is she necessarily fast, or is she just somebody who's able to get around? I think she's clearly a vamp. I think the way she's dressed and the way she's um, her persona is communicated is very vampish. Yeah, I feel like she's. She's also an outsider. Um, I mean, she's still yeah. she's still involved. I mean, she knows Daisy from you know when she was young, uh, from when Gatsby was around the first time. But she doesn't really take that like that strong of a role aside from again very calculated use on Gatsby's part. Mm. Um, is 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 she's utilized as a resource in the same way that Nick, that Gatsby initially uses Nick Carraway. Yeah. Um, but I, I think she's another characterization of the time that she is just someone who is, as, since she's flappers. famous, yeah, she's famous, fabulous, and very uh, self-involved. Yeah. It seems that like um, other people don't matter to her as much as she does to herself. Uh, and to a certain extent, actually, yeah. And, um, you know, at the end of the book, when she is talking to, to Nick Carraway, she kind of mentions to him, like, you're actually the first person who's ever blown me off like i usually just leave him in the dirt but you're the one who rejected me here you're the one who stopped calling me granted it was because gatsby died and he was kind of obsessed with putting together the funeral plans which was um, a whole other chapter to the book that the baz lerman movie did not take into account it, it, it like barely. hyphenated it barely almost. yeah yeah there, definitely gatsby's dad shows up in oh, the book seriously? Yeah. yes which they did do oh, in the 1974 version. In the 74 version, you have his dead there, and I thought that that was missing from the Boz Lerman version. It, it was, was needed. Well, I, thought, I thought it would help humanize Gatsby more. Yeah, the one thing I thought was interesting is that the um, movie version from 74, his dad comes in, and that's when you find out the truth about him being James Gatsby. Whereas in the book and in the Lerman film, you find out glimmers of that earlier on before yeah. you get yeah. the final... Yeah. Peace from the father. Well, not just nerd glim- trivia. <laughs> nerd trivia. Okay. What? Who plays Gatsby's dad in the nineteen seventy four version? Old Man Withers. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The guy who plays Gatsby's dad is the same guy who's the old man in Home Alone who's the shoveling yeah. the salt. Shut up. It's the same yeah, guy. Really? <laughs> it is. And it's brilliant performance too. That's crazy. Well, mm-hmm. I, I was and at- when I saw him, I was like, he looks just like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and I went on IMDb and I looked, and he never played Abraham Lincoln, and I feel like that's a crime against humanity. <laughs> Yeah, well, he does have that kind of Also, in, in the 1974 version, um, Clip Springer, who is the guy who kind of moved into Gatsby's house, um, who, who starts playing the piano, um, totally portrayed differently in the Baz Luhrmann movie. Yeah. Which, again, was another, I think, reflective aspect of, uh, to Moulin Rouge. Um, you don't think so? I don't think so. Um, oh, I think so. I thought Baz Luhrmann's version of him was like, I want him to be like Beethoven from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, but on methamphetamines. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, I, finish your thought. Okay, I, I, I was just going to say the guy that played Clip Springer in the, the 1970s version was the same guy who played uh, the grandpa in Gilmore Girls. Yeah, grandpa in Gilmore <laughs> Girls and um, Richie Rich's wow, father. Brian, you said that yeah. so, uh, like, Brian's a Gilmore Girls fan, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I have secrets and you have secrets. <laughs> just, let's just leave I'm, it I'm pretty that. sure David was a fan of Gilmore Girls. I was going to say, take five. Can we take five? I'm really warm. <laughs> Me too. All right, All right, let's take a break. Well, 
Welcome back, folks. We just took a quick little five-minute rest break because it's quite hot in Nerd Cave. And I'm sounding like a golf narrator. We're here in the 18th hole. We're looking at Sean licking his lips By after a hole, uh, devouring golf. of a pussy. Mean, uh, cavity. If you guys were here during the break, and you'd know why I was licking my lips. The wow. 18th hole was in fact Dong? Sean's mouth. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> the yeah, 18th no. hole. Do what you gotta do. I think this is uh, definitely a par four. Yeah. Brian, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the golf narrator. And Sean, par with the course. Uh, par three and, with uh, three uh, different posts. Eleven screen and Tiger Woods' wife is coming out of the woodwork with a <laughs> wrench, flailing <laughs> it over her head, calling Tiger a dirty liar and a cheater. I will say that is good form. It's good form. Good form. <laughs> oh, and oh, look. and look at the follow through on that swing. Oh, wonderful. Well oh, and look, there goes one of Tiger Woods' teeth. You know, oh, it's yes. going. And I've been holding this one. for 36 years, and you don't say a sucker punch like that very often. <laughs> Speaking of golf, I think we were talking about Jordan Baker, who is a golfer yes. in yes. Great Gatsby. Well done. Dude, what a segue. A and a movie. Or three. Help me. <laughs> um, <so laughs> trying to find our way back to the podcast. So uh, to judge follow the trail of bread. Oh, Eric Adam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was me. You <laughs> son of a bitch. Then why did you leave a fedora in every single spot where there was a breadcrumb? Ah, oh, to set Eric up. <laughs> I knew it. You diabolical <laughs> bastard. So to talk a little bit, just really quickly, as a point that I noticed, um, when you're talking about Nick Carraway as a narrator, um, from the Baz Luhrmann film, there are two points that stood out to me definitely that I think uh, kind of took some liberties um, with Nick Carraway's portrayal, and actually kind of affected Daisy's portrayal as well. At the very end, um, when he changes the title from Gatsby to The Great Gatsby, that little last moment... Um, kind of added a whole other element of uh, obsession obsession to it um, a, a level of, of admiration which is kind of touch yeah. and go actually in the book I would say mm -hmm. like almost a level of respect too because yeah. it's like it's he's looking at literally his entire thought process word by word and then he realizes wow even though he was technically a criminal the things that he did were great like um, as just one well, example Sarah you, you might be able to help out with this uh, in the book um, in the beginning of the book, like the beginning of the movie, uh, in the Baz Luhrmann movie, he says that he was the single most hopeful person that he'd ever met, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, uh, when I left New York, I was dis or when I left uh, Long Island, I was disgusted with everybody except Gatsby, which already showed a level of admiration from the start. Did they have that in the book as well? I cannot speak to that off the top of my head. Because that line in the beginning of the movie is what I thought set the tone for his right, allegiance right. to Gatsby. Here's something that I found very odd, and I granted, I tried finding it in the, the quotes from the book, and I couldn't. Both film versions make it out that Nick Carraway doesn't agree with everything Gatsby's done, but felt he was a close friend, and yet, I distinctly remember a moment in the book after he says goodbye to Gatsby while he's still alive, that uh, is an internal thought that he never really cared for him that much. Uh, there's the, the moment where he talk when he gives them the compliment. Yeah. And I'm yeah, he said to, that's I have the first highlighted. compliment I've ever given him. Yes, but there's more to it than that, and I'm trying to find it right now. Bear with me. Yeah, and it, it really. They're a rotten crowd. Uh, You're no, worth a whole lot of them. Yes, but then there's something else to that afterwards where he says, um, "I was really glad that I gave him that compliment 
because it was his last words to him he says that is something like he even though he disapproved of him he said i disapproved of everything he did and that's where i'm trying mm-hmm. to find the quote because i feel like it's really important oh but see it okay so i took it out of context because yeah. it's in everything he did as far as the dishonesty but not so much yeah because person. in both stories in the book and in the movie he's saying it in the third person so he has already experienced everything that's happened in the story so his opinion on Found it, it after all that is what is going to be the same throughout the entire movie mm. yeah or book yeah it says um i've always been glad i said that because it, it was the only compliment i ever gave him because i disapproved of him from beginning to end see and that's, in the, that's the way the book portrays him but in the movie yeah he's he's got his fucking mouth on gatsby's cock from the very beginning yeah well and there's there's actually there's um theory out there i i don't necessarily i'm not sure if i believe it or not that i haven't researched enough but there's theory out there that nick caraway's gay and he's obsessed of course there's Gatsby. also the theories that there's homoeroticism between batman and robin it doesn't make it true no but that's just, it's an interesting point of, of thought and discussion all right. <laughs> maybe, maybe. All right, with I'm that sorry. Thought, and it, actually, considering his emotional detachment with not only Jordan Baker but also the women um, that he references earlier in the book, uh, or in also in the movie, when he talks about how he moved to West Egg in order to get in order to to shed rumors of a previous engagement or a, a possible marriage, that he was like, mm-hmm. I'm not about that. And then in the book, he talks about how he, um, upon finding Jordan, he was like, Yeah, I need to stop writing these letters to this chick back home that I'm signing love Nick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's a, a lot of an emotional detachment with women and a little bit more emotional yeah. attachment And that's to probably reflective of F. Scott Fitzgerald's being jaded about women at the time of writing that book, too. No, possibly. So can we take a step back for a second? Yes. Um, oh, wait. This is far there's... enough! Oh, wait, there was actually, uh, there was actually another <laughs> Thank point. Thank you, Grover. I forgot there was another point about the narration because I wanted to make Oh, two go points. ahead. Let's wrap this up. Okay, uh, well, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. I just love talking about it so much. The other point of the um, that I think they took some liberties in the narration that then affected Daisy's characterization was the moment when in the Baz Luhrmann movie when she's crying into the shirts. Mm. Um, in the book and in the 1974 version, they just have it. She's crying into the shirts and she says, I've just never seen such beautiful shirts before. And that's where they leave it. In the Baz Luhrmann version, he says that it was the summation of five years worth of emotion built up that she was letting out, which I think gives Daisy a little bit more depth than possibly F. Scott Fitzgerald would have maybe intended. Mm. I don't. Th- I think that she did love him at one point. She loves him again. I'm not really sure because you know even she says, "I can't say that I've never loved Tom." based on her marriage with him in the past i can't erase all that yeah i think she's basically kind of maybe you know basically it allows a little bit more of nick to possibly pander to the audience to make it a little bit more obvious about why she might be crying go ahead john just to finish that up i was going to say that boz lerman's version was the first time that i actually empathized at all with daisy because in the book i remember clearly when i read the book and in the 1974 version Daisy is completely vacuous, in my opinion. She just does. She's just like a robot programmed to say certain things. She doesn't convey any emotion to me, really. Even when she's really emotional near the end, I just didn't feel it. But in yeah. this version of it, what's the lady's name that plays her? She was in Drive. Carrie Mulligan. And Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, Carrie Mulligan did a beautiful job of actually making me care about Daisy. She's a fabulous actress, and I think so too. I felt like, in comparison with Mia Farrow, Mia Farrow played the debutante part a little bit more. But she was so far removed that I just I felt like it was it almost for me it stopped being believable. 
It seemed like she was point. on drugs or something. Right, yeah. That's what I felt the whole time. Like, she was just drapilled out or something. Like, the entire movie, I felt like she was miserable to be everywhere she was, and that any moment of happiness was fleeting. I feel like there was a yep. lot of classic drama in her portrayal when she was doing, like, the, oh, I'm going to cry, so I'm going to turn away from the camera now. Yeah. You just know, like, because the movie is set in the 1920s doesn't mean you have to be a 1920s actress. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do agree. I think she played it very 1920s. Speaking of other character portrayals, I thought Bruce Dern's Tom was really lackluster. Oh my god, really it was lackluster. terrible. It was. It was. It was. It was again. It was. It was very common to Gatsby. It was kind of just like I'm going to say my line and I'm going to give you a look. He just kind of had a da-da look about his face, like right. elsewhere. He doesn't feel a single emotion in that film. Whereas Joel Edgerton's version was quietly getting more and more uh, enraged. Uh-huh. And was so well crafted. I think I just there was, I think, a, there was a very subtle yet noticeable build up exactly in, in his character, like and the interactions that he has with like everyone in the room, and then it just slowly starts, you know, getting a little more noticeable and more and more, and it finally culminates where uh, right after. Um, Myrtle gets killed, and they're all at home, and yeah. it's just like that's where it all boils down I, to him in that moment. I actually felt a little sorry for him, a little yep. bit. I then I also think you fucking dick when he lies to to Wilson. What is yeah. the line to, to his face while yeah. he's grieving? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I was just like you fucking dickhead. Oh, yeah. which but, that scene. Nick Carraway does not find out about that until long after Gatsby's been dead for like over a month. Right. And he sees him on the street, and um, then he finds out the truth. He's like, he's like, you're the one who told Wilson that Gatsby owned the car, right? And um, and at that point, um, Nick Carraway was deciding whether or not to shake hands with Tom because he was like, I'm, you know. And even after hearing all that stuff, he still shakes hands with him. Ooh, Nick Carraway, I'm so mad at you. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You unreliable That's, that's the thing I did like about 1974 is when, when Nick refuses to shake his hand. That was actually one moment that I enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. Um, In two hours and 23 minutes of dental <laughs> surgery. Wow. Yeah. So, by the way, the pivotal moment, and then I, uh, I like to get into more of the Lerman film, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, get, the, get in it, Brian. The Balls two, deep. Well, okay. <laughs> I, uh, the the two difference in the two pivotal scenes in the the apartment, the pacing in the Clayton version is so much more quiet and subdued, and then it just kind of like explodes when Redford clinches his fist. By the way, he never actually even raises it. Yeah. He is close, and she goes, "Thank you for saying that." Like, Thank you for saying out. that, Brian. Because I was watching that right before we started this, and I was just like, I looked next to me and looked around. There was nobody here, but I was just like. <laughs> Did Does anybody see anything? That? Like, I'm pretty sure even in 1925 or 22, clenching their fist like, oh, wasn't like you know. <laughs> Whereas the Blurman version, the tension was so well played and overlapping. I thought that was genius. It was, it was palpable. It was palpable. Thank you. <laughs> it was like I was watching really, really, really good theater. Oh my god, yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio's face. His muscles were quivering in his cheeks. He was, yeah. like, boiling. When he gets angry, it is a sight to be seen. That's my favorite Leonardo and, DiCaprio. You know, and to be honest, like, I kind of like the reaction to Carrie Mulligan's just, like, quiet, crying, freaked out. But if there was any moment for her to go, no! <laughs> like, it wouldn't would make sense. The DiCaprio grabbing him and, like, yelling him yeah. at him, you know? And but, in the book, never raised his fist, never got to that point. It never really? did that. It never did that. There was tension. You could you could definitely feel it, and there was uh, 
like argument, but and he was he had to like comp- recompose himself, but he never once touched him or raised a fist. So I have a question then for the literary major over here, um, <laughs> or I'm sorry, English major. There you go. Um, so in the Boslerman movie, you get the immediate sense that right after Gatsby explodes, like rage hulk hulking out on Tom, that's the moment where um, Daisy's like. Wow, this is a side of him I've never seen, and I don't like it. I am done. That's you get that moment in the movie. So in the book, if he's never raised a fist or never really like got angry, what was the deciding moment for Daisy to realize that nope, she's done? Uh, so the, I'm kind of glad you brought that up. So the in the again in the Lerman movie, it, it comes across more like, oh my god, he's got this whole secret violent side that I didn't know about. Is that something I want to deal with? In the book, it's more about her contemplating. Am I willing to throw away this well-established family that I have that comes from two completely well-established lines? And this is this is my argument for it. People can can debate me on this one. That's fine. You know, am I willing to throw away what I've already established and all this material here that I know that is sound versus going with this new money situation, which is volatile and you know is based on crime and you know bootleggery <laughs> bootleggery thank you that's what that's, that's what i was going to say is that nobody remembers that at the same time that he's supposed to get angry that he also that's the first time daisy finds out that his money comes from bootlegging cuz yeah. tom was doing his homework yeah and but and the thing is is in the movie I don't think they show her reaction to that. They show her they reaction don't. to the violence, which I thought was a strange yes, choice. I completely maybe, agree. Maybe it's just because I'm 90 years removed from this, but really, you're going to get mad about bootlegging? Like, that's the... Well, it's but that illegitimate. was a huge that's, deal. But, yeah. You have to remember, we've already established that Daisy is this person who is very involved with herself and doesn't care. Nick and his relationship with Gatsby, and we see how Gatsby fawns over her, so we assume that she's this goody-goody girl, but she's actually... Everybody in this movie is not who we thought they were. Everybody in the story, in general, is not who we thought they were. And that's yeah, one of the things true. you find out about Daisy, is Daisy isn't this perfect lady that's meant to be with Gatsby. She also doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> She's just like, <laughs> yeah. what's going to be the easier choice for me? Well, what's I mean, more if comfortable? You, yeah, if you go back and you look at it, she's not going to marry Gatsby the first time around because of the fact that he has no money. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, He has the, nothing to offer her. The, the thing I thought was really, really interesting about the Lerman version is he created this whole other scenario within the scene, within the, the swimming pool scene. Because as far as I know, the phone element is not in the book. And yet you have this moment of tension where you don't know whether Daisy's going to call. And I like that he used that, that she picks up the phone and then he it rings. And you find out it's actually Nick calling him. But I just I thought that moment was, was very interestingly played. That is in the book. No. It's not? Nope. It was well pl- it was well played by by Lerman, I will say, to build the tension absolutely and to kinda give that scene a different element. Um no, in the in the book it said basically um he Yeah, because was- Nick in the book it's from Nick's perspective, he wasn't there, no, right? No, 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 no. It's not that. It was that uh Gatsby was waiting to he still was kind of waiting to hear to uh, how to proceed because he was still waiting to hear from Daisy, but it was not an agreement that they had that she was going to call him that day to tell him anything. Mm. He just said, oh, I should probably hang out just in case she calls. He was being like the lonely girl on a Friday night. Yeah. As opposed okay. to... It was which, not- they, which they did in the, in the Boz Lerman version, they just added the whole suspenseful yeah. part with the phone. And well, and they of- said that she's supposed to yeah. call sometime in the morning, yeah. wait yeah. up with me because I'm not going to sleep. And speaking of the lonely girl, that one scene in both films which was done way better in the Lerman film when uh, 
you find all the lights on, but there's no one there, and Gatsby's just kind of like waiting for Nick to get home because he's kind of lonely and he's just looking for a friend. Like I thought that was so beautifully played by DiCaprio. I was like, I feel, oh, I feel mm-hmm. so sorry for you. I mean, and the set design too, where making the house look in complete disarray mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the leaves everywhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. or was it calculated? I mean, the scene mm-hmm. when he's the scene when he's out there waiting with all the you know the lights on and and he's just like, oh no, I'm just looking into all the rooms he's just waiting to be like did jordan talk to you because i want to i want to get this <laughs> shit going very very middle yeah. school style right exactly there. no yep. the the thing is with gatsby is is in all of the relationships that he's built and the reasons why he's throwing these parties the reasons why he's doing all these things it's very calculated oh, that's true yeah it's diabolical do they um <laughs> in the book do they delve more in the book into uh his relationship with um yeah, what's the billionaire millionaire guy on the Howard boat Hughes. that he? What Cody, <laughs> Captain Cody, Captain Cody? Do they get more into his relationship? Because I feel like they smash cut a bunch of stuff together for the Lerman film. I I don't remember that from the seventy four oh, one because I kind of skipped all around. Okay, gotcha. but from the book, what was? Did they get more into that story? Um, not actually that much. Um, so he does talk about how um, I guess he had dropped an anchor into some shallow waters or something like that in Lake Superior, and that's why he went to go. He basically saw an opportunity to, like, go rescue this guy, right? And within talking to Dale Cody... Dale Cody, right? Dale or Dale? Dale. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Um, he decides, like, Dale Cody's able to see, oh, okay, this guy's really ambitious. I like that. I'm going to take him under my wing. And after helping him out, he's like, cool, you're going to go with me to the East Indies. And mm. then that's where that leaves off. And then they do kind of talk... They drop a name of a, of a publisher. Um, her name's L something or other. And she's the reason why Gatsby did not get more money. Mm. Um, yeah. Didn't get money from the inheritance. Um, and they basically said, you know, they hit port in Boston. She came on board, and a week later, then Dale Cody was dead. And then they, so it's kind of like almost like this weird, you know, possible conspiracy. Or, yeah, yeah. So, something Saw happened. Saw that they were going to give him the money, and she's like, no, fuck that, I'm going to poison him. Yeah, yeah, something something went down. See, um, that's what Boz Lerman should have expanded on. Right? Just <laughs> 30 minutes of that and but just they, really throw it away for a curveball. Right, but they didn't, but they really didn't, it wasn't an exorbitant amount of time that was dedicated to that story. It was only, you know, a couple pages mm. of um, that. What I, what I do want, I'd like to change gears here for a second, because we talked about how many differences there are in acting styles, in plot pieces, and even pacing in the scenes. But the visuals in these movies mm. are literally like night and day. Yes. Um, in Clayton's film, it is all very white. It is all very aesthetically brighter. Very kind of pasty, in a way. Um, and yet, when I think of the 1920s, I think of maybe that a little bit when I think of like the summer picnics. But not about the era they're talking about. Not about the, not about the, the decadence that the movie is supposed to be talking about. I think Luhrmann's version does that much, much better. Yeah, and the way it does it is it litters it with Art Deco. Yep. There's Art Deco coming out of everybody's ass in that movie. Yeah, um, and I mean, going into their asses too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's just yeah, in and out. Uh, but it's, uh, an Art Deco strap on. Uh, <laughs> well done, but but like even not even just in like the desi- like the patterns of the designs and the the cool JG symbols on uh, the doors and everything and his ring or, yeah. or the ring. But simply just tone. Like, if you look at, at Art Deco paintings, it is all, like, extremely sharp contrast. Bright lights, f- 
grading into very, very dark shadow, and that is prevalent throughout every shot in this film. Yeah. Coupled with Baz Luhrmann's um, oversaturation, uh, his choice for like the movies that I've seen, like Romeo and Juliet and then Australian, uh, this one, he tends to oversaturate. And and Moulin Rouge. Oh, well, you haven't seen it yet, have you? No, I have. It's okay. just been a very long time. All right. Um, but yeah, he tends to oversaturate things, and I think for the first time, in my opinion, I think it it was perf- It was a perfect choice for this movie because all of the colors that he oversaturates play a, a subtle and uh, at the same time obvious role. Like for example, the color red is very much associated with Myrtle in almost yep. everything that she does. Yeah, but that's also in the book, and it's also very very tied to period too I mean all those colors were from the period that's Sarah's the freaking point. out that's the point oh my god the imagery in this book ah so damn good You, there is a very clear distinction between the colors that are used for old money and new money and then even for the lower classes when you get uh, you're talking about Myrtle yeah. um, it is so yeah. abundant that and I gotta say the picture of Eckelberg uh, was Brilliantly, really good. Really, really done. Really, yeah. really good visuals. And that's because they lifted it from the text. There's a lot of stuff that the Lerman movie did that was I mean, really, there were there was dialogue verbatim lifted from the book, and that I thought was really nice and really refreshing. Yeah, what I also thought was brilliant about that film was the score. Oh, uh, the yeah. soundtrack. Because Whereas Clayton's version uses period pieces mixed with orchestral, that's very 70s emotional, like love story kind of score. Lerman yeah. does emotional underscore by, actually, it's not Lerman, it's Craig Armstrong, uh, with period pieces like uh, Rhapsody in Blue by Gershwin, to brilliantly laying in uh, two things I thought Jay Z's score. Uh, oh yeah, no church in the wild, which is actually Jay Z and Kanye West right, from their yeah. album. The whole watch the, whole, the throne, right? And the whole—if you notice very carefully—they only play that when it, society is at its most decadent and the, its yeah. most excessive, um, or when introducing like 1920s New York as well. Yeah, but that's which was, they, but they were showing it from the perspective of excess and, and decadence. Though. Well, yeah, yeah, but it, I mean, it, it also sets the tone for um, like with Jay Z and Kanye's uh, style, especially for the Watch the Throne album. It's very. Esoteric, decadent, and very like on the nose. Did you, I'm rich and I know did it. Did you guys notice? Yeah. Did you guys notice the Beyonce song that was very cleverly done? Oh, the crazy, crazy in love. love. Yeah, the crazy in love that was done like a 1930s or 1920s. I loved that version more than the original. And actually, yeah, another really good one that they did in there was the Back to Black cover. Um, from Amy Winehouse that they did, mm-hmm. and it was really subtle playing during one of the parties. Was it Amy Winehouse? I thought that was uh, Florence <coughs> and the Machine. Like it sounded no, 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 no. Florence and the Machine did another. Did they didn't do a cover? They had an, Florence oh, they and the had Machine an original, original song, but it sounded very jazzy. Yeah, yeah, which was good. I well, I love Florence and the Machine. Um, and Who then, doesn't? Uh, and also the Lana Del Rey one was also really, really good. Oh but, yeah, that's the song that everybody's bought off that. That's yeah. like the one song. Yeah, everybody yeah. Had. that's that's the single. Um, but no, there was a there was an. Andre 3000 and and Beyonce um, cover of Back to Black by Amy Winehouse that was playing during one of the parties that I kind of like picked up on and I was like oh oh that's good and it it sounds super 1920s if you guys can't figure it out already we're basically saying get off your ass and go buy the fucking soundtrack because yeah. it's outstanding <laughs> yeah it was really good uh, what I would really appreciate when you use anachronistic music it's usually to draw a contemporary audience into the emotions and the feelings of a world that we don't understand. Yeah. And I think that this underscoring with, with the, the hip-hop kind of more contemporary notes to it was 
super effective in doing that. Yes, sir. All right. Kevin. So um, I, on this exact same topic, uh, I, my first experience of watching a, The Great Gatsby was so tepid that I walked away saying that I did not like the movie. I really despised it. Um, part of the reason why I did at that time was the music. It completely took me out of the movie to the point where it kind of like I, I look in from the window, look at myself, and then look back. That type of analogy in terms of mm. the movie screen being the third window or breaking the third the, wall. The fourth, the fourth, fourth wall. wall, yeah. And so it wasn't until I think it was you said it, to Sarah, or uh, someone else that I work with said it, that that was the whole point, that the type of music, especially from the Watch the Throne album, is very anachronistic of uh, what that movie is trying to imply in terms of the decadence and in terms of the extravagance of the 1920s and that lifestyle that they're living in. And it wasn't until that I was told that that I said, huh, you know, I really didn't put that together because it just I just had such a terrible experience the first time I saw it. And then watching it again, it made me realize, holy shit. You're absolutely right. Like it just it, it kind of settled in. I guess I I kind of had to get told about that in order for me to really fully yeah, get it. Yeah, and the lyrics of all the songs in the movie, if you listen, allude to things that are going on in the movie at that time. It, it was yeah. very cleverly done. Yeah. Um. I I gotta say now after seeing it the second time, my favorite uh, moment where Jay Z music comes in into the movie is where they have H to the Izzo and they're right on the Brooklyn Bridge and they pass by the car with all the um. It's the white guy that was driving a car of a black people just drinking and yeah. laughing, having a good time. And it, I was just like, wow, that reminds me of that music video. And at the same time, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's in the book. That yep. moment is in the really? book. And yes. then when you watch the movie, you think it's so out of place, but no, it's, Sarah's right. It, it is. It's not nearly as, you know. I, when I watched that moment, I watched that moment, I was almost like, I really don't know how I feel about this. But then I realized it's probably in the book. Yeah, but... It, I mean, granted, it's not nearly as exaggerated, and that's one thing about just yeah. the Baz Luhrmann movie that we can say is that it is great Gatsby exaggerated, including the themes, in which case I'm going to yeah. talk I, about I that. I'm going like... to talk about that later, but that scene in the book is, is just them. Um, there's the white chauffeur yeah. driving this limousine of, of, you know, black people, and they're just kind of, they look over at... Um, Nick? At Nick, and they're just kind of, they just kind of roll their eyes like, oh, yeah. This ain't no thing. And they just kind of keep going, and it's great. It's beautiful. I was Is that used as more of a device to demonize Tom more because of his white I really, supremacist? I truly oh, yeah. think so. I truly yeah, think, I think so. Yeah, I think it has... When I saw that, I was like... The whole the whole oh, time I point. saw that scene, I was thinking, like, point. take that, fucking Tom Buchanan. <laughs> Suck on that, you white supremacist piece of shit, polo-playing cocksucker. But also... Not that I have a problem with Tom. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it also kind of shows the fact that Nick is really observant, and in which case it justifies him being a little bit more of a narrator. But also the fact that it's showing the times and it's showing what's happening in the city. Yeah, the, the ruckus, as opposed to Long Island. Exactly. Yeah. The ruckus of the city as opposed to East and West Egg, which is a little bit more toned down, unless you're talking about Gatsby's party. Mm-hmm. By the way, are we going to talk about the East Egg, West Egg rap conflict? Oh, right. Well, <laughs> sorry. Well, you know, it all goes back down to Tupac and Biggie. <laughs> Biggie. Tupac would look at Biggie's green light from across the way. <laughs> and would say, that green light, homie. Uh, so, by the I way. I want you to shine a blue light over there. Fuck that green light. Green light. I, m- I remember reading the imagery of Fitzgerald's novel with the green light just like blanketing the sky. And I got that impression in Lerman's film, and like I watched the Clayton film, and I saw this blinking green light in the distance. 
like it was a I'm gonna make an Apple reference, like it was a freaking Airport Express that was having technical problems. <laughs> uh, it was nerd. Yeah, um, it just it. Well, I mean, it was that dry and that technical, right? Right. Uh, right, right. As opposed to as expressive as it was in. Um, um, it was alluring. The significance, in- of that li- the significance of that light is in itself one of the exaggerated themes, isn't it, Sarah? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Let's talk it- about those exaggerated themes. Yeah. Well, and and so that one is is. Is it the pursuit of the American dream in one aspect with the, the socioeconomic differences, or it's, you know, on a, a more um, topical level, it's more about you know trying to reach Daisy, but it is it is the very it is the very distant achievement that we're trying to get. And, yes, and green is the color of greed, is yeah, it not? Yeah, and money, yeah, absolutely. Coming from East Egg, and him being new money, <laughs> and this is being new to him being exactly. from West Egg. Okay, Kevin's arm's about to fall off. Well, only because okay. uh, this brings up a very similar conversation that Brian, Dave, and I had last time about the Godfather, uh, the Godfather yeah, in terms of the American dream, like trying to make an ends meet and getting rich off of it, whether done through legitimate or illegitimate means. Yep. And so yeah. I, the one thing that I really appreciate about Baz Luhrmann's uh, version of Great Gatsby is that there is a dynamic conflict of the American dream in terms of doing this legitimately, in terms of Tom Buchanan's uh, family, old money versus Leonardo DiCaprio's Gatsby. Oh, look, he's rich. I don't know how he's rich. And then, oh my God, it's from booze. And so, it- and, and and when you hold and when you really think about it, old money, it's just like no, you know, old money probably, you know, you had a plantation with a bunch of slaves back in the day, and that's how you made your money. So, right, uh, no, everybody's money uh, it has some sort of dirty story behind it at some point. Right, but also that's just the simple contrast between. Uh, everybody's lifestyle, and then compare it to the day-to-day existence of um, Myrtle and Wilson. You know, mm-hmm. who they're yeah. working class, struggling to get by. They're trying to go out west because he wants to make his fortune. Plus, he thinks that you know Myrtle. She's sl- yeah, sleeping the valley now. of ashes. Exactly. The rich people still win though, because George and Myrtle both die. That's two to the one rich guy that dies, Gatsby. <laughs> Folks, if you hear uh, loud banging noises, um, it is still people are doing post Fourth of July. Uh, celebratory fireworks. You hear that? Or there's a war going on outside. I can't tell for sure. Oh, I thought it was the neighbors. They were just banging really loud. <laughs> oh, well, that could be that, too. Yeah. Their rhythm's off. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but yes, I... I, I Alright, so I please don't give me the judgmental look of death, Sarah, but uh, when I saw... Oh, God, there it is already. Continue. Um, so when I saw Gatsby for the first time, getting back to my terrible experience, um, it was a very late show that the movie ended up getting out at like 1 or one thirty, And yeah, so yeah. unfortunately, it being a relatively warm theater considering it was packed, um, I fell asleep through a decent chunk of the movie. And ironically, it was during that pivotal point where Gatsby like, you know, lashes out and Tom reveals that, hey, you're a bootlegger. And I completely missed that point. So when I saw the end of the movie, I'm like, well, how did this happen? And I had forgotten the novel because it had been so long since I've read it. And then the second time I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, that happens. Yeah. And then I realized, like, looking at the entire, like, movie in terms of Gatsby's perspective and his, like, who he is as a person, it's so blatantly obvious that he gets his money from bootlegging that when it's revealed, it shouldn't be that much of a shocker. Yeah, I agree. Because everything that he does socially uh, involves booze. You don't really see him drinking it. Yeah. But he's just, it's like, it flowing out of his pores yep. and everything. Like any good drug dealer, you never get high on your own supply. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, that being said, I feel like in the book more so it's uh, 
the shady dealings that you see portrayed, you know, this, this like, you know, hovering manservant, etc., mm-hmm. that stuff is not necessarily um, brought out in the book. Really? That was exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Again, Baz Luhrmann's version is highly exaggerated. And I, I'm i going to just kind of use this then to segue into um, the critical response of it, because the critical response was not that good. It really it got like 50% it was, or something. It was, be- it was better than uh, the Clayton film. Okay. It was actually a Touché. lot better than the Clayton film. Touche. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of people were complaining about the fact that the, the movie itself felt, um, for them, uh, emotionally vapid. Um, and, and, and lacking. Point. That's the point in the Lerman film. I will yeah. I will say that. Again, it's exaggerating the themes. And if we're looking at these characters, these characters are emotionally vapid. And I think... Because um, it's reflective the, of the time. And he's trying to show the time again as, as, yeah. uh, as emotionally vapid. So that, that maybe that's what he was going for. Again, Lerman exaggerates, and he exaggerates well. Um, mm-hmm. And he uses those moments, and, and he utilizes that tension to heighten the exaggeration of it so i think in that he's kind of a master of his craft yeah right. so for the record the great gatsby 1974 has a 37 percent rotten tomatoes rating Ooh. of critics <laughs> who Woof. liked it and a 32 percent rating for users who liked it Woof. let's also consider for a moment though that anybody can go on rotten tomatoes and rate any movie now so the 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 user from rating this perspective yeah from the user rating is is much more telling so uh, the Rotten Tomatoes rating for Great Gatsby 2013 is 49 percent so you're right the majority of critics didn't like it still a hell of a lot more than the critics who did it in 1974 but not only that the user rating jumps from 32 percent or 37 percent one of the two to 70 percent 72 percent of users. Uh, enjoying this movie, huh? So, like, it got much more just general user f- positive feedback than their previous adaptation had. Done, well, and so. I think probably a lot of the critics are going into it looking at the book and and um, trying to do a direct comparison. I'm, yeah, I bet you a lot of them did have a problem with the asylum, and and you know, I do kind of actually, I un- I see it as a little bit of a crutch. I didn't think yeah. it was necessary. And I think that if they had portrayed the rest of, like, the entire last chapter of the book that they left out, I, w- I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more. But having said that, yeah. I really liked the Baz Luhrmann it movie. Was, yeah, I, I liked it, too, but that was the part that I think Baz Luhrmann was like, I want to stay as true to this as I can while while exaggerating the, the themes, but I have to, like, pound my stamp into it somehow, and that... I think is was his big stamp on it. Like this was what will set mine apart if nothing else does. I will say this: had it not been for us doing this podcast and doing agreeing that we were going to do this episode, I probably would not have seen The Great Gatsby until well after it was on a video. Having seen it in theaters now, I do not regret doing that because I, I grew, honestly, this movie was better than I was expecting it to be, um, and it ended up being I think a lot more true to the spirit of the book and the spirit of the time period and the, the themes of the book, then I think it lets on. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something alluding back to Baz Luhrmann's uh, influence about the, or reason for the asylum, but I we're moving on. So in my perspective, I guess the experience of going to the movie for the first time, plus like rehearing this story after so long since I've actually read the book, for me, it was, it was slightly confusing as to why I should care about this movie. I always try to find a reason to care, and it really wasn't until I essentially got re-educated by it through several people, including you, uh, Sarah. And I got to tell you, I really am glad that I got re-educated, and it gave me a much better appreciation for the movie. 
especially uh, with Baz Luhrmann's editing and style and the cinematography choices, because at first I didn't agree and didn't like it. But then after, you know, taking a step back and rewatching it again, it all of it makes yeah. sense. To begin to bring this home, was there any more final points we were going to make? Three things. One, I want to hear Kevin's point about the asylum. Two, I want to um, mention the fact that in the book, I do believe that Daisy is described as having dark hair and Jordan Baker is depicted as having yellow hair. And I kind of wonder why they flip them in both versions of the movie. Maybe Hollywood kind of decided what's They did it in the, uh, the, the 2000 um, A&E version, too. Mary Servino yeah. played Daisy as a blonde. Yeah, and I kind of wonder why they do that. Um, and then a uh, third thing is I have a very interesting fun fact about The Great Gatsby. But I want to hear Kevin's point about the asylum. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I'm also going to throw in an interesting story. Uh, about the 2013 Great Gatsby after you're all done. When it comes to the asylum, like we had this conversation earlier, Sarah, about why it's in there. And for me, being the big movie nerd that I am, I see it as a plot device to help the story keep moving forward. It's a way for the audience to step back from the story, figure out where it's going and why it's being told, and finding a way to actually create an empathy and a connection with the character of Nick Carraway as to mm. why he's telling this story, why it's taking a turn for the worse, and his character motivations as well. Considering how, with each movie, there tends to be one character that is the one that the audience connects to as that bridge in terms of why are we watching this story and what, who is this story about and who is it for. And I thought that uh, from a movie standpoint, I like the Asylum idea because it helps, in my mind, it helps create a motivation for the story to move forward. It gives a reason as to why we're watching this is because Nick, uh, in a, a moment, not necessarily of catharsis, but I guess in a moment of reflection, he's trying to figure this out as well. And so he is using his experiences with everyone involved in the story, writing it down and explaining it where you get to see the story going forward. And I can see that, but I would also argue that him sitting and reflecting on Gatsby's death at the point of his funeral would have also been um, as effective and not made him seem like a crazy person. Well, I think it's just, <laughs> uh, I, I, I can see where you're saying, and right. I, I do agree with that. And I'm not going to say however or but, but, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm totally kidding. All right. um, I like the idea of having his character go through everything seeing the logical progression of him breaking down as a person and therefore ending up in the asylum because it was all too much for him to handle. Like, before he moves to East Egg, next to Gatsby? Or is it West, West Egg? Egg? West Egg, okay. Um, he's a very, like, goody-two-shoes type of person that never had any any risks in life. He never adventured anywhere. It was just, he was a very reserved and very calm person. And then this experience takes... A real toll on him. That we're aware of. Go yes. ahead, Sean. The thing that I don't understand is if if Nick Carraway is going to be so destroyed by what he witnessed happen between his second cousin once removed and Gatsby and what would happen with Tom and Myrtle, that was so much for him that his alcoholism, because that's what they said that he was in the asylum for, was for his alcoholism. That's what he was working through. And depression. He became an alcoholic symptoms. because of that, because it tore him up so much, and he ended up in an asylum. Yet, he's a World War One veteran, so nothing that he saw there yeah. sent him to drinking. Like, why would that? Why would this be so hard for him when he was in the trenches dodging mustard gas? Where, where, where do they establish that Caraway is a World War One? No, it's oh, established. It, it is established. He, he yeah. talks about it at the party. Oh, okay, thank yeah, you. Gatsby had once met or heard 
Nick's name because they were both in the World same War garrison War. or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gotcha. Cool. So I must have missed it on that. It was a yeah. throwaway line in the movie. At it least. was a throwaway line in the movie. It was pretty throwaway in the book almost. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but but still, the fact that he was a World War One veteran, like he yeah. would have seen way more shit that would have made him turn to drinking and lose his shit than being like. I witnessed the shattering of the American dream. It's like, no, you saw your buddy's guts fall out in front of you. You should be more worried about that. No, no, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. All right. Last thing. Fun fact from Sarah, and then I swear to God I'll shut up about this. <laughs> uh, um, Andy Kaufman, in his college tour that he did while he was still alive, um, you know, he Andy Kaufman himself had a pretty interesting career, and, and a lot of people... Um, wanted him when he was going on his college tour to do basically latka from taxi um so then they would like kind of like hassle him from the audience trying to get him to uh just do the voice be latka and he didn't want to he would stop and he would um kind of put on a, a british voice and, and just be like oh this is actually how i actually talk and um he's like i'm going to read for you uh, the Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he would start to read it, and then people would kind of laugh it off a little at first, and they're like, "Okay, no." You, wait. Read the, you read the entire book. Yeah, this is really awkward, and he would seriously just keep reading it. And if they were hassling him enough, he'd be like, um, "Okay, I'm sorry. Would you like me to keep reading, or do you want me to um, play from the phonograph?" And they're like, "Oh no, no, play the record, play the music." And he goes over and he sets the phonograph, and it would pick up from right where from he left off in the book. And it would continue, and he would go back, and he would go back to reading *Great Gatsby* until it was completely done. This wow. book, uh, that scene is beautifully illustrated in the film *Man, Man on the Moon, Moon* by Milos Forman. Yeah, uh, yeah, I was, I'm glad you brought that up yeah. too. Um, yes, sir. Um, I also had a fun. <laughs> fact uh, trivia so to speak uh, i hope i'm not one-upping you sean about uh, the great gatsby that actually comes from an interview that baz had uh Boz had with uh stephen colbert this was probably in mid to late may where um i'm going to give you the abbreviated version of the story because i'd really like you guys to hear it and see it from him um which you could probably mm -hmm. find on hulu um basically he had a screening an impromptu screening of the great gatsby um I want to say it was probably near November, December last year, uh, and just impromptu, it was like 24 hours notice, and people came and saw the movie. And this old woman approaches him at the end, because he was there for the screening, and says, she says, more along the lines of, um, I drove all the way down from Vermont to go see what you did with my grandfather's story. And sure enough, uh, Boz is like, you know, kind of caught off guard. It's like, what do you mean? And turns out this uh, woman is either the a great she's grandchild the or, she's the or the granddaughter of uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and apparently they had a great talk afterwards and she was taken aback and really enjoyed Baz Luhrmann's version of The Great Gatsby so I mean it's an abbreviated story but you should definitely hear it from uh, Baz himself in that interview because I was completely caught off guard when he was telling this that's really, really really surprised cool. yeah yeah I mean again even though it does take liberties with certain plot points uh, I do feel like it it does still very is very true to the themes and the intentions that Fitzgerald put forth in in the novel. You know what, guys? I'm gonna say as we usually do. I like to hear what our listeners have to say about Gatsby, and see which do you guys think is the greater Gatsby adaptation. And um, you can do that by following us on uh, Twitter at our company Twitter at Nerdonomy, and you can also do it on our Facebook pages uh, for Nerds on Film. And um, guys, do you have any final points you want to make? I think I've said all I can say about this. Well, maybe not all I can say, but all I will say for now. Um, Death even... to the Clayton family. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sorry. I mean, I disliked the 74 version. That's what I mean. 
Even though we didn't really get into it, I wanted to just comment about how much I was impressed by Leonardo DiCaprio's version of Gatsby and how much I actually enjoyed his performance. And I would say that uh, his portrayal was my favorite part of the 2013 Baz Luhrmann Great Gatsby. Agreed. I agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Sean? I, I also agree. Kevin, I love you. Oh, thanks. I love you too, Sean. So with that, folks, if you'd like our episode, please. Well, first off, if it's your first time listening to us, hi, how are you? Welcome aboard. Um, you can subscribe to our podcast on both iTunes and on Stitcher Radio. And if you're interested in hearing from us personally, you can follow uh, three of the four of us on Twitter. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm Sarah Ash 16. And I am at Big Sean Moe. And of course, again, the company Twitter is at Nerdonomy. Kevin can be emailed through our website, nerdonomy.com. Which is Kevin at nerdonomy.com. There you go. And, um, guys, you know, this podcast is user-supported um, by listeners like, well, you and you and you and you. And uh, that sounded so KQED. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we've been supporting this for ourselves for a long time. And thanks to listener feedback and listener contributions, we've been able to get a wonderful air conditioner. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> Though it's not on right now because we, we need to really get it. I think ceiling is the next... It's yeah. the next piece because yeah. we have an air conditioner, but now it leaks like crazy. Um, as far as the the cooling, the cold air, and plus we Not also have a computer that we're trying to pay off. So any any amount that you guys could give is uh, much appreciated. Do so, you know, seriously, we'll, guys, we'll, please, we'll, we'll take I, a small I'm, donation five six thousand dollars. It's uh, getting dire. <laughs> I'm starting. I might start up uh, a webcam business. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that'll be Big Sean Mo Jerks Off dot com. <laughs> <laughs> Me with a shirt on and nothing else, jerking off, and that's how we'll have to raise money if you don't just throw us in. You know, <laughs> four bucks, five I must, bucks. I must say, I really appreciate how classy you've kept this episode, John. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well said, old sport. Well mm-hmm. said, old sport. I can't sport. believe I, You know what? I had this grandiose idea that I was going to be saying old sport throughout this entire here. podcast, and I never said it once. That's why I had to bring it up, old I sport. I know. Thank you, Kevin. I'm surprised we, never we didn't mention sport, it. Um, if we didn't do it, it wouldn't have been a Gatsby podcast. <laughs> so if, if you guys do want to give us any form of money, we will appreciate any amount you can give us. Uh, you can click on the donate via PayPal button on our homepage at nerdonomy.com. And, well, guys, I think that's it. I think I so, think, too. I think we've talked ourselves to death Yep. at this point. Well said, old sport. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> you know, have a good week. You can hear us next time, same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye. Bye. Peace. And roll credits. And now... Famous movie quotes you should not say during sex. I'd really rather not be the polo player.